My name is Doc. I am hosting a softball tournament in June. Actually, it will be June 3rd, 4th, and 5th, the first weekend. It's a Thursday, Friday, Saturday event uh, to raise money for Mission 22 to help prevent veteran suicide. Because as you know, 22 veterans a day commit suicide. I personally am a Mission 22 survivor. This June will be 15 years for myself from when I tried to commit suicide. So it's just in my heart to give to Mission 22. I would love for y'all to be a part of this tournament by giving donations. Um, I can be reached by email and it's beard, B-E-A-R-D, bash, B-A-S-H dot softball at gmail.com. I would greatly appreciate as many donations as possible. And it does not have to be $5, $10. It can be 50 cents. All proceeds will go to Mission 22. Amber, what are you drinking today? Well, Amanda, even though this will be uh, aired way far from now, I'm on day three of no alcohol, so I have water. Yay! I'm yeah. still so proud of you. You've made it to day three. Day three. Day three. I don't even know what my liver's going to say to me when I start drinking again. <laughs> or what it's saying to you right now. It just hasn't registered the shock yet. Oh, I, I don't know. Like, it's weird because I haven't, like, felt, this is how I know that it wasn't a truly a problem because I haven't felt like withdrawals or anything. And I know that when people stop drinking alcohol, they can go through withdrawals. So yeah, you're not getting yes. the shakes or the bends or the, no, so that's no, you're good then. Yeah. I never had a problem, but that's not why I quit drinking. So <laughs> I quit because my Keystone and Bush lot were making me fat. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone has their own motivation. <laughs> What are you drinking today, Amanda? Well, you are going to be super surprised by this, but I'm drinking some Svetka mango vodka with an orange crush. Is it not? It's not good? No, it's delicious. I just usually don't go for sodas. No, you don't. And I'm surprised. I am surprised that you have a soda. I'm not surprised at the Svetka vodka. That, yeah, the soda part was the part I was talking about. But it was yeah. in the house and it was staring at me and I was like, I bet that would be good. So what does it taste like? Is it tropically tasting? Or? Yeah, it tastes kind of like a kind of like a pog from Hawaii. Oh, that's why you like it. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's better than I thought it. It's not as sweet as I thought it would be, but you know, with soda, you can put more vodka in. Well, there you go. And it, you know, it's more of a vodka mix than a soda mix. So I figure it evens out. It evens out. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to this episode of Veterans Drinking Vodka. We believe that every veteran has a story to tell, and we are here to tell them. We have found that being a service member was easy, but being a veteran can be very hard. In this episode, we are talking to Patty Rogers. She served in the United States Air Force from 1984 to 1988, and she served as an information systems specialist. How are you doing today, Patty, and what are you drinking? I'm doing great. I have a margarita. Oh, they, yeah. Margaritas are delicious. Oh, they are. Love tequila. 
Yes. So I just have to have a little side note that you were in the military before I was born. (laughs) (laughs) Just a little side note of information right there. That's incredible. Glad I could make the way for you. Yes. (laughs) We appreciate all of your forward charging early on for us. Especially as an information system specialist. So you had more of a specialty job and not like a nurse or a administrative position or something that was common to women back in the 80s. Right. There weren't very many women in the military period, but um, there weren't, there were definitely not a lot of women in the technical fields, you know, like computers. I was a systems analyst and I was only one of two women in my office when I was stationed at Vandenberg. And then I was the only systems, well, they only have one database manager, but the database manager works with the systems analyst. And I was the only woman at my second base, which was Comiso in Sicily. When I went through database manager school, I was the youngest person there. And I was the only woman in the school. You are tough. <laughs> yes, we're getting all the badass women this week. I know it's amazing. We've had some cool ones, and you're like right up there in mm-hmm. the mix. We would like to give a huge thanks to Rafa 180. Rafa 180 offers pure medicinal CBD and products made locally. They walk alongside individuals to achieve a healthy lifestyle with options needed by each person. You can learn more about them on Facebook at Rafa CBD, their website, www.rafa180.com or email at rafacbd at gmail.com. They truly believe your journey matters. Can you tell us a little bit about where you're from and how your story started? I'm originally from Sacramento. I was born on Mather Air Force Base. (laughs) (laughs) My father was in the Air Force and retired from the Air Force. And it was something that I always wanted to do. I always wanted to go into the Air Force. It was just kind of my plan. I went in delayed enlistment. I graduated high school at 16, so I couldn't go in right away. And I didn't go in until I was 19. I took some time, did a lot of security work. I was a boxer. I was on a boxing team. And they recruited a lot of people to do security work and ended up working for Bill Graham Presents and did a lot of concert security and bodyguard work, kind of, kind of stuff like that. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yes, it is. How can we be cheers to how badass she was before she even joined the military? Right? Yeah. Cheers to that. Graduated at 16, became a bodyguard. Like, no wonder you were primed and ready to, like, lead the charge for women in the military. You told us a little bit about why you joined the Air Force. It's a family tradition and it's what you always wanted to do. But why did you decide to become an information system specialist? It wasn't my decision, to be honest. I wanted to be a boom operator. I wanted to be on a flight crew. Um, My dad was a pilot and he had his own plane, used to take us flying all the time. And I really wanted to be in the air. I went in open general and ended up not being able to be a boom operator, but they gave everybody a test. It was real similar to an IQ test. And they just took the top people that scored the highest on the test and put them in computer operator school. It was a a fairly new field at the time and mainframes were just coming around. So it was a pretty small field. We only had 
maybe 15 people in the class. By the end, there were only about six of us. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty tough school, I can imagine. It we is. didn't have Google to rely on back then. No, we didn't have Google at all. <laughs> computers were um, not powerful at all. Did they not have ASVAB tests in the 80s? They did. You took the test and, you know, you can pick your job specifically, but I wasn't able to pick boom operator for whatever reason. I don't even remember now. And I just went in open general because I definitely didn't want to do medical and I didn't want to do like, uh, I, I just don't like the sight of blood yeah. <laughs> and hurting people or people hurting. I mean, I could take care of somebody in, in a pinch, but it's not something I wanted to do for a job. And I, I kind of feel like I got tricked into it in a way. It was like, oh, you want to be a boom operator? Just go in open general. You'll be able to pick it once you get once you get to boot camp. That wasn't true. And it ended up being a blessing. So that recruiter said, got you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You didn't make his quota for open general, I guess. Right. <laughs> I feel like that's similar to the undesignated program in the Navy. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, where they're you like, you can go in and it. then you can try out all these jobs and see which one you like the best. And then you can get whatever job you want. And then they get you in and it's not like that at all. Not at all. No, I, so, I really enjoyed my job. I, I liked what I did and where I was sent. So I I ended up, I, I think it was much better to do what I was doing than to be on a flight crew. Yeah. I, I, yes. It's like it, the best job accidentally fell in your lap. Exactly. That's perfect. You mentioned a little bit earlier your duty stations. Can you tell us those again and if you had a favorite one? Uh, it was Comiso Air Station in Sicily. It's a very small base. It was just a few hundred of us at a time. It was a remote assignment. The people in Sicily hadn't seen Americans before. Nobody, very few people on the island spoke English. So you're very immersed if you're if you're there. There was so much going on in Europe at the time, you know, and it was a missile base. We had ground launch cruise missiles and they were nuclear. So it was a a strategic NATO base. It was half American, half Italian. And it was just, it was really a great assignment. There weren't a lot of people there on base, but, you know, we had our mission and we we did a good job. Ended up getting two um, Air Force Outstanding Unit Awards for my two years that I was there. I was only supposed to be there for a year and I extended and was able to stay for another year. That's probably because you were so badass at your job. They're like, <laughs> we're keeping her. <laughs> well, they had just given computers to the soldiers for the very first time, PCs. And they needed somebody who yeah. understood computers and could teach and help, you know, the guys that, supply and the mechanics and everybody else who had never seen or touched or knew about computers, somebody that could teach them how to use them to do their job. And it was a small computer technical center. And the guy that was in there, I had worked with him at data automation, which is the mainframe computer. So they sent me back to school to learn all of the different computer applications. And I was the director of the small computer technical center the commander actually put out a flyer saying that she was looking for a computer guru and had everybody apply. And I was just 
I was just maybe a couple months before I would PCS and she picked me and I ended up extending for a year and staying and doing that job. That's awesome. I did get to go to Germany several times. I went to Germany. Well, I went to a small base near Venice for some training and then up to Germany for some more training and then back, back to work, teaching, teaching all the GIs how to use computers. <laughs> There's uh, worse jobs out there for sure. Definitely. It was a top secret base with a lot of top secret m- material. There oh, were sure. rooms that were lead lined. You know, our building was lead lined where we kept the computers so that information couldn't go out. And I had to work on like the PCs that were used for top secret information. And they had like, I think it was 68 screws on the top of them. And I had to <laughs> unscrew all of that in order to get in there. And oh my God, no. it was that they broke. <laughs> that makes our 13 buttons sound a little less. <laughs> <laughs> Scale Executive Search is a veteran owned and operated search firm serving aerospace tech and startup. They've managed to set themselves apart by not only understanding the job market, but also ensuring their candidates and clients are invested in not only their careers, but also themselves and their families. Can you tell us a story about your time while you were on active duty? Like I said, when I was in Italy, there weren't a lot of Americans there. Um, The song that... Michael Jackson put out, We Are the World. It was a very popular song at the time. We would go into town in the town of um, Comiso and all the kids would follow us around singing that song. They would (laughs) follow everywhere we went, serenading us with that song. (laughs) Oh, that's lovely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the, the people there had... I don't know. It was kind of strange because they just, the only thing they knew about Americans was from TV shows right. and their customs are so much, so different from ours. Um, you know, like it, it's not rude to follow somebody. They don't, it's not considered stalking. You walk into a restaurant and everybody will stop. Forks will, every fork will hit the plate. They will turn their chairs. You could hear everybody turning around and they will stare at you. Especially when it's like a group of women that, you know, three, four of us will go out to dinner. We go wherever we went. We were just stared at, followed. <laughs> we were never any danger. To right, both you were just different. At home with their mom, they would, they would take you home and, you know, try to get their mom to feed you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you have some really great Italian meals while you were over there? Oh, definitely. There was a family that took me in. I just became very close with them. The mother was a an artist. And I saw one of her paintings in a restaurant, talked to the restaurant owner about buying it and got introduced to her. And when I went over to their house, I was getting off of work at like, I think it was like midnight. I was on a, a, sh- a late shift that day. And they had a whole like table of probably about 40, 50 different things for me to eat. <laughs> I was like the, you know, they were consummate hosts. And um, the father was a butcher, so that he always had like the best cuts of meat. And she taught me how to make a lot of Italian dishes and used to cook for me at least once a week. That's awesome. 
The restaurants were really good, but it was the same food over and over again. And you get tired of, I mean, their pizzas are very different. It's, it's really bland compared to the pizzas here. You know, like the tomato sauce is just that it's fresh tomatoes ground up. Oh, um, the cheese is usually fresh mozzarella. And so there's not a lot of salt to it. Um, you know, like the salty pepperoni pizzas that we're used to. The most popular pizza there is called a 007 and it's got a hot dog, peas and boiled eggs on it. But <laughs> no. no, thank you. Did you try it? Yeah, that wasn't my favorite. Oh. <laughs> was it like a grilled or a baked hot dog or was it just kind of like a rubbery? Yeah, it was just like a hot dog out of the package. They would slice it, you know, the long way, slap it on the pizza, um, put peas on it, take a hard boiled egg and cut it in half and put that on there and throw it some cheese and sauce. And that was it. Wow. No, No. (laughs) that sounds like it has some British influence or something. Isn't that where like they eat a lot of peas (laughs) mash up in the Europe. I don't know. That's odd. They don't have Chinese food. They don't have Mexican food. They don't have much fast food. They're, Hamburgers taste a lot different than ours. Uh, they generally don't serve ketchup with fries. It's mayonnaise. A lot of pasta, a lot of grilled meats, roasted meats. But you can just want to know Italian every day. How do how do Italian people eat so much pasta and carbs and they are not big people? I need mean, some. Um, they don't, they, don't dr- they get a lot of exercise. They like to buy your meal, you don't go to a grocery store and just pick up everything. You have to go to the store that sells the cheese. You have to go to the butcher shop to get the meat. If you want chicken, you have to go to the chicken store. If you want fish, you go to the fish market. Then you have to go to the vegetable market. Then you have to go to the bread, the bakery to get your bread. So, I mean, they do a lot of walking. People walk a lot. And the, they eat pasta midday. They don't eat. They don't eat the heavy food at night. At night. Generally, they'll have a continental type breakfast, coffee, pastry, fruit. They have their biggest meal at noon. Uh, they'll eat their pasta and salad, and then they take a nap for a few hours. They go back to work, and then they eat nine nine ten o'clock at night for dinner. And it's usually something light, like a grilled meat or a salad to go with it, vegetables, things like that. I uh, like I the thought that. of like eating a heavy lunch and then taking a nap and then going back to work. I love that. Like that makes my heart happy. We're doing yeah. it wrong in America. I know. Definitely. Right? Like, can we have some pasta and some wine and then take a nap and then go back yes. to work? Yes, please. <laughs> well, I do take a nap every day though. So. But I'm working. 12-1 is my nap time. There you go. Yeah, you're living like an Italian right now. The whole the whole city goes for a walk on Sunday night. Like and they're they're dressed to the nines, like in their best church clothes. And the whole town, you go out and there's like one street that they walk around, you go to the bar, you go to the different cafes, and they just kind of walk around in a big giant circle. Everybody's out there the entire town. Amanda, we're going to Italy. Looking yeah, like we, just stepped out of Italy for sure. Like <laughs> that's that's our kind of place right there. Mm-hmm. And they take the whole month of August off. 
Sign me up. That's when we're going. (laughs) We're going. We're on our way. August. We'll be in Sicily. (laughs) I mean, that's like all of the things we love to do, like pasta and wine for lunch, nap, a whole month of vacation. Exactly. Getting dressed up and walking around. Sunday walks (laughs) and like stop at the bar in the cafe. Like I'm ready to go. They don't drink a lot there though. Like even at like the nightclubs, they don't, they don't drink a lot of alcohol. They, they drink at home. Yeah. You don't see people out in the streets intoxicated and people will never drive intoxicated there. It's a social thing for them, right? Like they just go and have like a social beverage and then go home. Um, The discos they're they're everybody goes to them no matter what your age and there's no drinking age so if you if you're tall enough to go up to the bar and say beer they'll give you one it doesn't matter you could be 10 years old but they don't have problem with alcohol like we do here i think every town has one town drunk though that's what i found they they have one and it's like a designated person and that person is the town drunk (laughs) And that's their job. <laughs> can we cheers to the Italian town drunk? Town drunk? Yes. Yes, we can. Cheers. To the Italian Italian town. town drunk. I feel like every town should have one. It kind of is comedic <laughs> a little bit. I was thinking about that. My town that I live in has one. <laughs> I no, think every town in America has a town drunk too that everyone just knows. <laughs> right? There's Frank on Shameless. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's an American town drunk, but same concept. Everyone knows him as a town drunk. I'm glad I'm not the town drunk. No, it wasn't all fun and games in Sicily. There was so much going on. The Red Brigades were really active. We were having a lot of skirmish and problems with Libya, and we were the closest American base to Libya. Ooh. And they actually fired missiles at us. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That puts a damper on your Sunday afternoon walk. It does. It does. Um, it wasn't a Sunday afternoon. It was really early in the morning on a weekday. We used to get, we, we exercised a lot doing war games, you know, with the gas mask and the charcoal gear, you know, the chemical warfare gear. And back then it was heavy. It was extremely heavy. In those Not like now where they have all this modern materials, like it was heavy back then. No, and it was usually in the middle of the summer in the heat. It's 105 degrees outside and you've got this big thick blanket of a coat and pants on lined with charcoal, charcoal boots, charcoal gloves, gas mask with the big hood and and all of that. And that charcoal gets everywhere. Yeah. And they would come and knock on the door and yell recall. And it would be middle of the night. You'd have to get up and get to your, you know, whatever your designation designated station was. But this night they knocked on the door and said, recall, this is not a drill. And almost at war with them. Wow. That had to have been something to live through. It was pretty scary. There was a lot of things that went on. I was in Germany just about two weeks before. And I went to this disco and the disco got blown up. (gasps) And there were three, I believe it was three servicemen that were killed. Wow. And Um, you were there. I was there just before it happened. I was their TDY for school. There was a place in Spain that got had been blown up, and I was there in Madrid probably a month after it happened. I was at the Rome airport about a week after it had been bombed. It was bombed the same time as the Athens airport. It still had plastic up 
stuff like that. It was not a good time for Americans in, in the in Europe. American military, they made us wear civilian clothes, hide our military ID. Um, I, had, I had an Italian military ID because our base was actually run by the Italians, even though it was a joint base. So then you used your Italian ID everywhere you went. Yes, but that caused problems too because there's no women in the Italian military. Oh. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I can see how that would get complicated as well. Get to the airport and show the carabinieri my ID, and they're like, "Yeah, get out of here." There's no like, way. That's fake. <laughs> and I'm like, "Okay, look, look behind me. You can see the American flag there." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you're like, uh, "Okay, let me pull out my ID. I'm not supposed to show you." Right. Yeah. Ugh. There were servicemen that were killed on an, on a Pan Am flight. Once the hijackers found out they were American servicemen, they killed them. So that's why they didn't want us to identify ourselves as service members. Right. Right. Well, we still go through quite a bit of that when we're overseas. Like they have us dressing a certain, even now, like dress a certain way or let your facial hair grow out. Or if you're, you know, a man, obviously, hopefully the ladies. Right. It's much easier for us to hide. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We don't have have the haircut. (laughs) Right. Like blend in. Don't like be American. Right. Um, just yeah. do things like that. And they put us through training even, even in the two thousands because they don't want us to be recognized as American military even today. Right. Yeah. They would tell the guys not to wear the cowboy boots and the big belt buckles and the cowboy and the baseball caps, things like that. Right. Um, but they never blended in. I mean, yeah. You'd have to dress really nice in order to blend in with these people. <laughs> uh, they dress the exactly over dress there. That well. <laughs> right? Yeah. But yeah, they definitely put us through training on how to like change our mannerisms and, and blend with the locals for whatever country we were going to be in. And right. that, was, that was always kind of interesting. And these are the customs and make sure you follow the customs and don't, don't go over there and be a lug. Right pretty much is what they were saying. Like, don't be alone. <laughs> because then you will stand out. <laughs> don't, don't go stomping your feet and being a spoiled American. Like, yeah. Exactly. Sure. All right, Patty. So eventually everyone has to transition from being in the service to being a veteran. How was your transition, especially in the eighties, to being a civilian or a veteran after being in active duty and living that lifestyle overseas that you were living? It wasn't that difficult for me. I don't know, growing up with the, my dad being, you know, in, in Air Force member, he kind of, kind of lived that lifestyle already. Um, he all, even after he retired, it was always like, it never let go of him or he never let go of it. So it was kind of like being in the military, <laughs> being, <laughs> being his daughter. Um, but the training that I got in the military really helped me a lot. I ended up getting a job at a community college as what was called then the microcomputer specialist. Um, I was, th- there were two of us, one of, there was one for the academic side and I, the other side, the, he ran the computer lab and I taught the different professors and their secretaries and the administrative side, 
how to use computers and work on their computers. And we did the class schedule for the first time in-house from start to finish. So I had to teach like all the secretaries how to use database managers software and did everything from start to finish all the way through to desktop publishing to sending it to the publisher. But was it easier to teach the instructors how to do that? Or was it easier to teach the GIs how to do that? It was definitely easier to teach. Well, the GIs didn't always grasp it well, but they tried a lot harder. <laughs> you know, Bless they, their hearts. Bless <laughs> their hearts. Yes. <laughs> they knew that they'd be in trouble if they didn't get on board with what was going on. Um, right. But they were not always the smartest ones. Um, <laughs> I think 90% of my calls... Cause I was, I was like the IT call, call center person. They'd call me and tell me their computer wasn't working. And almost every time it was like, is it plugged in? Is it turned on? Oh, okay. And that was it. <laughs> but they had incentive to learn. I mean, they might've grumbled about it, not wanted to do it. They're used to doing it, you know, the old way. And they didn't want to use computers, but they knew they had to. They didn't have a choice, so they were easier to to teach, I guess. <laughs> um, a lot of the, especially like the, the dean's secretaries, they didn't want to do it. They'd always done it on a typewriter. They didn't, you know, they, they didn't want to put the class schedule and, you know, they had wanted somebody else to do it for them and they had to do this themselves, so... I got a lot of resistance there, but ended up being fine. You were trying um, to train the bougie girls. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I did that for a while. And then I, I taught at a couple of different business colleges, but I, I just got burned out working in computers. I was always under somebody's desk up in the ceiling, running cables you know, <laughs> in some little dark corner somewhere. You know, my office was in the library of what used to probably be a broom closet with no windows. And it, I, I just got burned out working in computers and decided I, I was done with IT. Didn't yeah, want to do it anymore. Over it. Definitely. So then what did you decide to do after you left the IT field? I, I actually moved from California to the East Coast for a while. Just worked in retail. But I made a lot more money doing that. I was on commission and I worked in a really bougie store. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> All that practice with the dean secretaries. <laughs> exactly. Um, so you left yeah. California and then you went to the East Coast. Yeah, I was living in Maryland. Um, I was only there for a year. I moved back to California and then I ended up working for the California Medical Association in their government relations office. Um, just kind of worked my way up. I had been in this class in high school. It was called Classroom Without Walls. And some of the things, we, we went on field trips every day for an entire semester. And wow. that's how, and for our government credits. I want to be credit, in a class like that. I know, it was awesome. For our government credits, we spent two weeks at the Capitol and two weeks at the courthouse. And I really liked the Capitol. And one of my classmates, her mother worked at the Capitol. And I just thought it was so cool. And it was something that I'd always wanted to do. And working for a lobbyist was really close. I was at the Capitol all the time. Um, started out as a runner, just 
picking up letters, dropping off letters, picking up analyses back and forth at the Capitol, um, doing basic administrative work and just worked my way up there and became like the top administrative person at the medical association. And then uh, I'd seen a few jobs here and there. I was there for six years, about five years in, I decided I was going to try to work at the Capitol and see, you know, if something good came up. Um, there was a job in, that was going to be working for the chair of rules, the rules committee, which basically is the administrator of the assembly. And I knew that the chair of rules was going to be the next speaker. You know, it was already rumored. And I thought it would be really cool to work for the speaker. And so I went and interviewed, got hired by the uh, to work in rules for the chief administrative officer or the deputy administrative officer and chief counsel. And I was her assistant and she really liked me. And she told me that if the chair of rules, if he became speaker and she decided to be his chief of staff, that she wanted to take me with her. So she did. Uh, he became speaker. She became his chief of staff and she took me with her. I was her, what they call a gatekeeper. In order to get to the chief of staff, you had to go through me. Yeah. I, I worked for an attorney for a while and I had basically the same job. Like <laughs> <laughs> she was an attorney, um, but she was the chief of staff. She was like yeah. one of the most powerful. It's like the same staff. concept because like they hide from everyone. Like they don't want to talk to anyone unless they want to talk to them. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I also ran the front office, uh, the front office of the speaker's office. There are were three people that, well, it was actually five people that worked in the front office and I had to handle the schedule. We were open from seven to seven. When the speaker was there, the chief of staff was there. When the chief of staff was there, I had to be there. So I was there quite a bit and we had to make sure that when the speaker was there, that there was always somebody there to answer the phones. So I was the one in charge of the scheduling, making sure that there was always somebody there. And then, um, so I was her gatekeeper. I was in charge of you know the front office and then they were going into their first policy meeting and the policy director comes up to me and asked me to come to the meeting with him and I thought oh maybe they need somebody to take notes or whatever I don't know I I, I never was one of those people was like that's not my job I was always like okay I'll go <laughs> and he told me he says oh Diane thought you would be a good person to um, handle veterans affairs and military issues um, policy-wise for the speaker. And so I was his person to do handle, you know, all of the veterans issues and military affairs and um, anything policy-wise for that. And they, they, they were like, I know you've never done policy before, but it'll be really quiet. Nothing ever happens with the military in California. <laughs> of course, all of these things started happening where, you know, the National Guard sent out with no with no ammunition. The head of the National Guard ended up in some big scandal. Uh, it was just there were there were all of these things going on at the time. They were just waiting for you to get into the position. And right. then they were like, game on. Patty's got us. Exactly. That's I did have backup. We had an office of protocol that um, two attorneys and one of them worked on military issues. And so him and I did a lot of stuff together. It was, it was pretty interesting. Our million dollar question, since you spent a lot of your time in California, but you also spent some time on the East coast, 
Which coast do you prefer? Oh, definitely the West Coast. Yes. Woo! <laughs> Cheers to West Coast is the best coast. Yes, it is. Definitely the best coast. Patty, this is why you're now in our circle. <laughs> no, I, I enjoyed my time there. I remember the first time it snowed because it doesn't snow in Sacramento. I mean, extremely rarely. Um, and I was out in the parking lot of a grocery store and I thought, wow, this is so cool. And it was cool for about five minutes. And yep. I just could not take the cold and shoveling <laughs> snow. And You're like, no. just kidding. <laughs> I know there's snow in certain parts of California, but I mean, I'm close to San Francisco. I'm close to the to the Sierras. I could go go up to the Sierras to the snow if I want to. I can go to right. You can go and then come back. You don't but have to stay. Sacramento's beautiful and there's so many places close by that are so nice. It is, I just spent Christmas up there and it was gorgeous Yeah. in Redding. So just north of Sacramento. That's nice there. Yeah. Um, Redding I still and Bernie. The small town was called Bernie. Okay. Up in the mountains where there does snow. I still work for the legislature. I've been there now over 20 years. Wow. Did you for- buy back your time from when you were in the military? I haven't, but... They they do they do let you do that. It's called airtime. I haven't really needed to, but I think I might be starting to think about retirement. Yeah. And what I want to do and you know, making sure I have enough money to do it. Yeah. So now would be the time to do that. Right. Yeah, you're getting close after 20 years in the legislature there. Yeah. No, I've enjoyed it. I've Mostly done health policy. I worked in the Senate side. I worked for the Speaker. I worked in rules. And I've worked for the Health Committee for since 2003. Okay. And I really love what I do. Plus, my boss, I handle veterans issues for him, too, on the side. Uh, My boss is a good guy. He represents Santa Rosa area. Okay. Place where all the fires were. Yeah. Twice. Did the fires this year affect you at all? Or I guess 2020 affect you at all? Um, They affected his district, not me personally. I mean, I smelt them, definitely. You know, the air quality here was horrible for a long time. But, um, you know, people in Sacramento didn't lose their homes and their livelihoods like they did in his district. And he's a dentist. He's retired. Well, not retired, but you can't work in the, you can't be an elected official and work a job. So he's, he basically retired from dentistry, but he's a forensic dentist now and he volunteers his time. So like all day he would be out picking up pieces helping, you know, making sure the firefighters have what they need and getting people services that they need. And then the entire night he would spend identifying people by their teeth. That's such a call to service to be able to do that. Yeah. So I'm really lucky. I, I work for a really good guy. That's awesome. That is so awesome. So if you had any advice for either service members that are getting ready to become veterans or service members that may be struggling as veterans, what kind of advice would you give them? Check in to see what kind of services that you qualify for. Check in with different groups. Um, Maybe check in with if you're having a problem, if you're having problems, check in with your legislators. Every legislator has somebody that has expertise or that, you know, has experience helping other veterans. 
there's so many, um, I get contacted quite a bit, you know, by people that are, it, it's hard to cut the red tape, but when I call and say, I'm calling from assembly member so-and-so's office, they do what I ask them to do. I get through, they don't put me on hold. You know, they might do that for in our constituents, but you know, if there's something that you need, use your legislators. That's what they're there for. And, you know, every, every legislator has a district office. I know that there are some that don't do well. I hear over and over again, you know, people have contacted their legislator and they haven't done anything. Well, you, you all, you have more than one, you have two state, you know, you have federal ones call, call a policy committee, you know, they'll help you. Cause we've get, we get people that aren't in my boss's district that will call the policy committee saying, I have a problem where I'm having a problem with my health insurance, or I'm having a problem with, you know, this hospital. And we have contacts in all of the departments. We can, we can work it out for them. That is awesome advice. Yes. Yeah. For, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't even have any like follow-up for it. <laughs> right. Like, that, like yeah, great contact your legislature if you need help with something. <laughs> it's yeah. It, sometimes it comes down to that and that's final answer. It is definitely. Um, but keep calling good. until you get someone in legislation that will help you. A lot of people don't know to call the policy committees. Um, Whatever, I mean, if you're having a problem as a veteran with something that's, you know, vet related, call the Veterans Affairs Committee. You know, we have, there's one in the assembly, there's one in the Senate here in California, then there's national. And even if it's not a state issue, if it's a federal issue, the people that work for the, the state legislatures have contacts at the federal level. I have contacts over at the Department of Veterans Affairs. I have a friend that is the head of legislation at the Department of Veterans Affairs, you know, who used to work for the California legislature. So, um, yeah, when you start getting up into those legislative ranks, legislative, oh man, I'm not, I'm going to butcher that word, but into those ranks of people, it becomes such a small community that you guys do know each other and you do know who to contact and who to recommend that you contact that might help you more than another person. And so sometimes just calling around to different organizations might get you somewhere where you need to be that you might not have thought of. Right. I mean, I've, I've even had problems. Um, you know, I've, I've had some issues with the department of veterans affairs and I go into these policy meetings with the people that run the place, you know, in California that like I, I had a meeting um, last, not 2020, but 2019, and the brand new head of the Department of Veterans Affairs for California was there, and their head of legislative legislative affairs, and you know several other higher ups, and a couple of other different groups. You know that like they had um, I don't know, a couple of nonprofits that help veterans, and. This woman came in saying, you know, things are going to be different now. I know that we've had problems in the past, but we're really going to start helping veterans. So I was like, okay, cool. I need to get rated and, you know, for disability. And so I thought, okay, she can, she can really help. So she gave me her card. I called her up and she pushed me off on somebody that didn't do anything. Oh no. The CVSO here in Sacramento is not very good, but so what did I do? I called the Veterans Affairs Committee and I said, 
I'm having this problem. And they're like, okay, there's a CBSO officer that works in Fairfield that really does a good job. And so I contacted him and he got it done. Yeah. Yeah. Just so, keep calling. There's always going to be someone out there that can help. Right. So calling the policy committee, not the department, not, <laughs> you know, any other service organization, but calling the committee is what worked for me. So yeah, that, cool. that would be my advice. Call your legislators. And if that doesn't work, then call the policy committees in your state. Perfect. So if our listeners had questions or if they just wanted to talk to you about your time in the service, where can they reach you? My Twitter is she served. And so is my Instagram. I'm always happy to answer questions. Always happy to make friends. Yes. We love making friends. (laughs) That's what Amber and I do. We make friends forever. Like once you're in our circle, like you're in it. So welcome to our family. And, and, you know, I'll give you guys my number. If, if there's somebody that wants to reach out to me, you know, definitely contact me and let me know. Perfect. Yeah. So if you want to contact Patty directly, contact Amber or myself, and we'll give you those contact details here in a minute and we can get you in touch with Patty. Schwartz Davidson law is a Texas based veteran friendly law firm. Credit and debt is a big game and one rigged for you to lose. The system's designed to keep you in it, spending money and juggling different types of accounts so lenders feel more comfortable lending you money. Worse credit equals worse rates, and there's no shortage of companies trying to collect. Negative reporting is an attempt to collect a debt. So what happens when a debt collector or credit bureau makes a mistake? What happens when they refuse to fix it? That's when it's time to lawyer up with Schwartz-Davidson Law. Call the folks who started in credit restoration, got a law degree, and have been holding the credit bureau's feet to the fire to protect consumers and help you take hold of your financial future instead of letting the anxiety of it run you. How do you get a debt collector to stop calling? Let them know you've got an attorney. How do you get the best deal on a settlement? With an attorney. You don't have to break the bank to fix your credit or deal with debt collectors. Contact the attorneys at Schwartz Davidson Law for a free consultation and let us go to battle for you. We're here when you need us. Amber, do you want to talk a little bit about the charity that we've chosen to represent this episode? Sure. So on top of our continuous support for Till Valhalla Project, we have also chosen to help support, recognize, and introduce anyone who's listening for the first time, or in case you've missed it before, the Fallen Outdoors. Um, They are a veteran organization across the entire country that takes veterans on hunting and fishing trips with other veterans. And you do not have to have anything other than a DD-214 with an honorable discharge. If you log into their website at thefallenoutdoors.org, um, you can put in your location and they can set you up with some type of outdoor activity that you'd like to do. They're a great organization, especially yeah. if you like the outdoors. Yes. and. In order for us to help and support the Fallen Outdoors and Silva Hollow Project, we have merch for sale. There'll be the link is in the show notes. The link is in the show notes. The link is in the show notes. There are t-shirts, tank tops, long sleeve shirts, hoodies, face masks, and coffee mugs. Yes, we've recently added the coffee mugs and face masks. So yeah. 
Look it up. We also have koozies and stickers, but you have to reach out to Amanda and I directly. And how can they do that, Amanda? Well, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Veterans Drinking Vodka. Or you can email us directly at veteransdrinkingvodka at gmail.com. You can use any of those contacts if you would just like to get a hold of Amber or myself, or if you're interested in a koozie or a sticker. We can also be found on YouTube, and we're using YouTube to provide all of our outtakes and uncut, unscripted situations that happen on this show, and that's hilarious. So if you want to see the full Monty of what we do on this podcast, subscribe and like our YouTube channel, Veterans Drinking Vodka reach out to Amanda and myself if you would like to tell your story and be a guest on our podcast you can send us an email or a direct message on any of the social media platforms if you like our podcast subscribe on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify TuneIn, Google Podcast, Amazon Pandora or wherever you choose to listen to your podcast also leave us a review and let us know what you think Good, bad, ugly, and different. We love your constructive criticism. By no means are Amber and I professional podcasters. We're just two veterans with a vision. Also, if you leave us a review and a rating, it helps with our what algorithm, the podcast world algorithm. I think I've got it now. (laughs) And by helping with the algorithm, it allows for our podcast to be seen by more people and potentially more veterans so that our stories and your stories can be heard and told and help a wider range of people. Yes. Especially because every single person that comes on here has advice. Absolutely. And it's all important advice. If you're not not hearing the podcast and sharing the podcast, and that means there's veterans that are not getting the advice and help that they need. True story. True story. You can also join us on Sundays. For Veterans After Hours via Zoom, and we start that at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. We are hanging out, telling stories, sharing resources, and meeting new friends. We do invite everyone, civilian, active duty, military, or veteran. We just have to put the disclaimer out there that it is a live, unscripted networking event primarily made up of veterans from all branches, so we cannot be held responsible for any topics that are discussed during this networking event or actions you never know so if you want to know stop on by we put the zoom link out at all of our social media or if you would like a veteran drinking vodka email to invite you directly send us your email we'll put you on the list and you'll get a link every sunday afternoon yes um but uh why amanda and i started this podcast was not only to hear veteran stories, share veteran stories, but to bring about mental health awareness in veterans and the fact that 22 veterans kill themselves every day. And 22 is 22 too many. One is too many. And you are never alone. Veterans drinking vodka. Cheers.